Jason mentioned, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. I know it's been a while since we've been in Luke, been over a month since we were going through this, but for those who are just joining us and jumping in, uh, we're, we're calling this study through the Gospel of Luke, Good News for Everyone, uh, because Luke, the, the doctor, the author of this book, really emphasizes that throughout his gospel, that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, and it was for everyone and anyone who would call upon the name of Jesus. Last week, we finished up a series we were looking at called In the Foothills as in Heaven, and we capped it by sharing last week where we're headed as a church uh, to a a God-willing launch date of fall of next year. Um, please, if you were not a part of church last week, go listen online or go listen to the podcast or go grab a CD in the office and make sure you hear that because we're excited about where uh, God is leading us as a church and we want to move towards that target in faith and obedience. But as we mentioned last week, it's going to take everybody jumping in together, a collective effort towards that if we're going to be able to reach that. And so I would encourage you to listen up um, to that, pray about where the Lord might have you be a part of that, and then step out in faith and obedience. Well, this morning we're picking up uh, partway through Luke chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 28 this morning, and you can read along with me. Here's what we read. It says, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which was about to, to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Let's pray this morning as we begin. God, as we come before your word this morning, we ask that you would speak. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, a heart that's open and ready to receive your word. And Lord, we want to be people that are not hearers only, but doers as well. And so we pray that your spirit would empower us to be obedient, to do that which you call us to. Lord, this morning as we look at the transfiguration of Jesus, we pray that 
just as the disciples saw you in a new light, that we as well this morning would see you afresh and anew. God, would you be glorified and magnified as we study your word? And would you teach us what it looks like to pray, to be in your presence, and to follow after you? And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning and you want to write down a title, you could write this down Be still and know. Be still and know. That's what we're going to see. The, the instructions given to these disciples as they are up on this mountaintop experience with Jesus. But, but that wording is actually pulled from Psalm 46. Beginning in verse 8, we read this. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. That instruction to, to be still and to know that he is God. This morning as we dig into Luke chapter 9 and we see the disciples brought up onto that mountaintop, it's going to be the same instruction that they would just be still, that they would be silent, that they would look and listen to Jesus. But before we dig into our study, there's two things I'd like to do this morning. The first is that I want to make you aware of um, maybe some good-looking people you saw in some maroon uniforms this morning that are uh, some chaplains that are here. They're going to have a table out in the lobby after service. And those are friends of mine, Byron and Gina, and they're a part of Placer County uh, chaplaincy. They both serve as community chaplains here. And uh, I had the opportunity uh, January, not of this year, but the last year, to go through academy with Byron and and, uh, and step into that team. And so they're going to be here this morning after service to be able to share about the chaplaincy program. Uh, what is a, a community chaplain or a Placer County law enforcement chaplain? And, and uh, how you can support what's going on there, but also if the Lord might put on your heart to pray about joining that academy in January and being a part of that team. You know, what, what drew me to be a part of the chaplaincy was wanting to have more of a presence in our community not just on people's best days, but on their worst, and being a light to people, and being able to be a, a voice of truth, and to carry compassion, because that's really what that ministry is. It's a ministry of compassion, just being a presence with people in their worst moments. And I'll tell you what, I really believe I'm a better uh, pastor, having been a part of it. I believe I'm a better husband and father for being a part of it. And so I would encourage you Pray about if the Lord might be putting on your heart uh, to support that ministry or to join that ministry. They're always looking for more people to volunteer and, and be a part of meeting with people on some of their worst days, hearing the loss of a loved one and having someone come to your door to bring you that news. It takes someone who's willing to be the hands and feet of Jesus and carry his heart. So they're going to be available after service out there at a booth. Uh, go check it out. 
Uh, go encourage them. Go pray for them and hear how you could be a part of what's going on there. But also this morning, I want to pray for Israel. And, and I'm sure many of you have, have seen what's going on in the news. You've heard of the attack that's taken place and, and uh, so many lives lost, so many kidnapped, still so many injured. Um, and what looks like it's going to be a, a lot worse before it gets better. But what we know is that we've been given a instruction by Jesus to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and to lift up his chosen people in prayer. And so we want to do that this morning as we begin before we dive into our study. God, we come before you, Lord, out of obedience as you have called us to, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, God. Lord, your chosen people. And Lord, it breaks our hearts to see the attacks going on. The lives, the innocent lives lost. Lord, so many misplaced, so many taken from their homes. And God, we pray that you would fight on their behalf. That just as we read in Psalm 46, Lord, that, that you would be their refuge. God, you are the one that breaks the spears in half. You, you break the bows, Lord, and, and we know that you can bring the attacks of the enemy to nothing. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, you would move on behalf of your people. Lord, that you would bring a quick end to this enemy, whether that be through through a, a radical transformation of their hearts like you did with Saul, or whether that be through bringing an end to them through destruction, we know that you are in control. We know you are a God of justice. We know you are a God who, who rises up one, one nation and brings to nothing another. And God, we pray for those who've been taken from their homes for their protection God, we pray for those that are doing this evil, that you would convict them. God, we pray for those who are mourning and grieving the loss of a loved one, that you would comfort them. God, would you move in such a mighty way that there is no denying you are God. Lord, for Jews in Israel who are yet to call Jesus their Messiah, we pray this would draw them to the truth. And Lord, if this is all part of your plan in ushering in your kingdom, God, we pray that we would be people that are ready, that are prayerful, that are serious and watchful, that are looking and longing for that day. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this psalm that I read this morning, with this instruction to be still and know that He is God, it's a, a beautiful psalm of the sons of Korah, we're told in, in the text. It gives us an instruction that we see repeated, though worded differently, not only this morning in Luke 9, but in other places as well, like in Exodus, an instruction that we'll look at in a little bit that Moses gives the people but of a correct response when, when people are in the presence of God, beholding His power and glory, that they would just be still 
and that they would know that he is God. Two, simple instructions that at times can feel so impossible to be obedient to. To be still and to know. To not run, to not hide, to not force it, to not try and control it, but just be still. And the way that we can be still is when we understand that God is fighting, as Psalms 46 tells us, that God is in control, that God will be exalted, that God will be our refuge, that he's the one who makes wars cease and has made desolations in the earth. And so the invitation within the text is to be still in the context of as we come and behold the works of God. And we can be still because he's at work so we don't have to be. But also to know that he is God. Not to doubt his ability. Not to question his methods. Not to be deceived by the enemy. But to know, to confidently rest in the assurance that he is God. That he is the word used here, Elohim. The one that created all things and in whom all things exist. The threefold Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's the reality of these two commands. To be still and to know that he is God. They can't exist without each other. We will not be still if we do not know he is God. If we are not confident of that assurance that he is God in control, we will try to fix it ourselves. We will rush into our own solutions for the problems at hand. And like we see in Peter in our text this morning and dozens of other people, Old and New Testament, we will make things far worse and not better. But also, we will not know that he is God if we do not sit and be still before him. We'll be a people that are constantly prone to wander. We'll become distracted with other less important things. Like Martha busy with the chores when she's got the Messiah sitting in her living room. When we are not still and sitting before him, we can so quickly forget that he is God, that he is in control, that he has a plan, and he's working things out for good. Both are are required that we would be still and that we would know he is God. And the disciples wrestled with that. We'll see that in our text. You and I wrestle with that in a culture where we are constantly busy and wrestle with doubting. The invitation this morning is that we can be still and know that he is God. But let's dig into our text. Let's learn from this incredible moment that we see three disciples invited into with Jesus. And it begins by saying that as it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, I just want to 
call out something that exists here because if you've read through the different Gospels, there's a, a, a detail here that many people try to point out as a contradiction. You see, Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, they both tell us it was six days that then Jesus went up on the mountain with the disciples. And so critics will pull this out and say, aha, see, there's a contradiction in Scripture. They say six days. Luke says eight days. Well, let's just clarify this real quick. Luke's language, even in the original, is, is much less uh, exact. In fact, in our English, many of the translations might put here about that he says something like, it was about eight days, whereas the others are saying it was exactly six, and he's saying it was about eight. That's one thing that's worth noting. But also what Luke is doing is tying it together with what he was just talking about. See, he says, after these things, or in your, one of your translations, it might say, it came to pass. This is immediately following this moment that Jesus had with his disciples, asking them, who do you people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly proclaims, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. And, and there's this incredible moment with Peter and Jesus, and the other Gospels give us that uh, less than proud moment of Peter where then he tries to rebuke Jesus because Jesus says, I'm going to die. But Luke is including that day and that moment into this and also sandwiching the day that is currently going on as they go on to the mountain, and there's this transfiguration. And so he's sandwiching, you could say, the six days that both Matthew and Mark talk about with the day that Jesus had this conversation with the disciples and this moment on the mountaintop to give you eight. So it's, there's no contradiction here, but it's something worth clarifying, worth knowing in the text. When you see things that are different, dig into them. They've got a reasonable answer. But it's after these sayings, it's after this moment that Peter boldly declared, you're the Christ, you are God. And Jesus said, yeah, but flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father. And after Jesus tells them, I'm going to die, something that Peter wrestled with in that moment because they were expecting him to come and rule and reign in power, not to go and die. And it's after these sayings that he takes three of the disciples, Peter, John, and James, and goes up onto this mountain to pray. And these three disciples, among the 12 that were called by Jesus, uh, frequently are given opportunity to be uh, in the room, in the space with Jesus, in some pretty incredible moments. These are the three that we saw already in Luke were brought into the room when Jesus resurrected the daughter of Jairus. He brought her back to life. It was only these three that were in the room with Jesus, and they were, they were strictly instructed to tell no one of what took place in that room, just like we see in the other gospel accounts. He gives them the same instruction here at his transfiguration. It'll also be these three that in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus goes before the Lord, he invites them to press in deeper with him into the garden and to pray for him as he goes before the Lord. But before you begin to elevate these three, before you begin to, to title them the super saints that they most certainly were not, let's remember something about these three. 
these three given these special moments to see God work unlike anyone else, you've got Peter. Peter, the disciple who, as I mentioned just earlier in the gospel, was rebuking Jesus. And what did Jesus call him? He said, get behind me, Satan. This is Peter who at the end of Jesus' life is going to deny him three times because he's so scared of being associated with him and what it might mean for himself. He denies him three times and he weeps bitterly and runs from that place. Peter. And then you've got James and John whom Jesus gave the title to the sons of thunder because they wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume people. They wanted the power of God to bring complete destruction and wipe out a people. Jesus says, you guys are a little wild. I'm going to call you the sons of thunder. This quick temper you have wanting to use my power to bring destruction. But that's not it. These are also the two young men who come up with the master plan to bring mom to go before Jesus and say, hey, can my sons sit at your left hand and your right hand to be at this place of honor when you rule and reign? And I know a lot of people are like, maybe their mom just went up and did that. Maybe they were embarrassed and didn't want her to do that. Well, regardless, as soon as Jesus says, well, can, can they drink from the cup I'm going to drink from? You know what they do? They jump up and they go, oh, yeah, we can do it. We can drink from it. So clearly they're not like, we apologize. Mom's just getting ahead of herself. This isn't, ah, Jesus, I'm sorry she does this. That's not what's happening. He's like, but can they really drink the cup? And they jump in. Yep, we can do it. Jesus, we can drink from the cup. And these are the three that Jesus is bringing into this incredible moment to get to witness his transfiguration. So why? Why are these the guys that get this incredible moment? There are other disciples that we don't see all these flaws with. Some of them it's because we're given very little detail of their lives at all. But you think, gosh, there are a lot of other people, Jesus. Why these three? They seem like they're the ones that have the biggest blunders following you. Well, it's not because they were perfect people. It's not because they were the most polished of the apostles. This wasn't their gold star on the mountaintop because they earned it and did so much good that they got favor with God. This is just because God is that good to use us and bless us even in spite of us. Because he's full of grace, because he's rich in mercy towards disciples who are very much still a work in progress. It's the same reason God uses the foolish to confound the wise and the weak to overtake the strong. He gets the glory in it and not them. Now imagine if we had three seemingly perfect apostles who followed Jesus and we saw nothing wrong with them in Scripture and every day they are just walking by faith and obedience and they get to go up on the mountaintop with Jesus, you and I would be sitting here going, man, I'll never get that. I could never see Jesus like they saw Jesus. I could never be used by God like they were used by God because look how much better they are. They didn't fail. They didn't make the mistakes I made. They don't have the flaws I have. And instead, 
We look at three men and we see ourselves. Men filled with pride at times, men who made foolish mistakes and were moved by fear and were constantly fighting for position and wanting to be the greatest and doubted and denied and wrestled and struggled. And we go, well, that's, that's like me. And if, if Jesus wasn't ashamed of them, if Jesus still invited them into this moment, man, then there's a place for me. We could belong in that family. We could be a part of those apostles. Church, don't base God's goodness and favor in your life on your performance. These men get to see Jesus in his glory, and it has nothing to do with their record. It has everything to do with how good and gracious God is. And if you get up every morning and you feel like the only way God smiles upon me and wants to hear from me and use me is if I have a perfect month of reading my Bible and I spend at least 30 minutes a day in prayer and if I have perfect attendance at church for a month and if I... We've been saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, otherwise you could boast And if Jesus is a man of his word, then he meant what he said on the cross when he said it is finished. That means the work is complete. You've been redeemed. You're a child of God. The work is finished. And so you can come in boldly into that throne room of grace. You can come to the presence of God knowing that you'll receive his favor that he desires to meet with you and use you because of what Jesus did. It was really enough. And these disciples are living proof of that. And he brings them up on this mountain. Mountaintops are an interesting thing in Scripture because they're often the location of theophanies, these visible manifestations of God in moments throughout Scripture. And we're not sure of the location of this mountain. Many kind of battle between two, Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon, as both uh, close enough locations and possible options. Uh, if you go to Israel, everybody's trying to make a buck convincing you of why this mountaintop is the one and why you should go there. We don't fully know for certain, but he brings them up to a mountaintop. And it is there that he invites them to pray with him. But we see something incredible take place as they pray. We're told in the text that his appearance, the appearance of his face, it was altered. And his robe, it became white and was glistening. Now we know this scene in Scripture as the transfiguration of Jesus. That's because Matthew and Mark both use that word. And yet Luke doesn't. He doesn't actually use the word transfiguration in his gospel, he describes it to you. And many assume his reasoning for doing that, it was intentional, it was to avoid a term that might have been suggested in these Hellenistic ideas in their culture, of an epiphany or an appearance of a God, but not the substance of him there. And so intentionally, he did not want to use a word that could get hijacked by another religious group 
And so instead of giving the word transfiguration, he just puts in the work to say, let me tell you what it was like. From these eyewitnesses talking with these apostles, his face was altered. His clothes were glistening and shining, and he's describing what the other two summarize as the transfiguration of Jesus in this moment of prayer. And not only is Jesus transfigured before them in a glorious way, but there's two men talking with him, and it's not Peter, James, or John, but we're told it's Moses and Elijah who were with him. And they spoke to him of his decease, of his death, his departure, is the best way of translating that which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. And these men are identified with Jesus as Moses and Elijah. And maybe you're wondering the question, how do we know it's Moses and Elijah? Good question. They didn't have Facebook. They weren't like, oh, I recognize you from your profile picture. (laughs) Moses and Elijah have been dead a long time. Peter, James, and John had never met them. But for whatever reason in this moment, it's clear to everyone this is Moses and Elijah. Now, maybe Jesus just tells them that. Maybe there's a conversation going down the mountain. Maybe this moment when they wake up, he's like, hey, guys, meet Moses and Elijah. We, we don't know, but there was no denying who it was, which then brings you to the next question, why Moses and Elijah? Of, of anyone and everyone that could be in this moment to have a conversation with Jesus as he's transfigured on this mountain, why is it Moses and Elijah specifically that are chosen? And the simple answer is this, that in Moses and Elijah, you have a picture of the law and the prophets. Moses, who was given the Ten Commandments by God on another mountain, and Elijah, one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, who also had a mountaintop moment with God when God spoke to him in his still small voice. And so in these two, you have the, all the law and the prophets represented coming to Jesus and having this conversation. You know, another interesting thing about these two men is not only what they represent and that they both had unique mountaintop experiences with God as well, they also both had very unique deaths, or we could say passing from this life, because we're told that Elijah's just caught up in this whirlwind and and heads up into heaven, And, and we're told that Moses was buried by God, and then there's this odd battle that happens over his body. It's, it's an interesting uh, detail given in Scripture that brings a lot of debate as to why we're given it and what it means if it's pointing to Revelation and these being the two people that are coming back there as well. But nonetheless, it's these two that are here in this conversation with Jesus, two men who both had opportunities in their lifetime to demonstrate how God was greater than all the other false gods. In Exodus, you've got Moses and the plagues that God is bringing to show himself stronger than all the gods in Egypt. And with Elijah, you've got this this battle that takes place on Mount Carmel where, where he's sitting there against all these prophets of Baal and they're proving whose God is greater 
But these are the two men chosen here. And one other interesting detail is that Moses really served to point people back, back to the law, back to the old covenant, back to the beginning of the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, as the author of those first five books of the Bible. And in many ways, Elijah is meant to point us forward. And you say, well, wait a minute. He's an Old Testament prophet. How would he point us forward? Well, when Jewish people speak of Elijah, even today, it's often in, in reference to his coming back. He's much more of an eschatological figure than he is an Old Testament prophet in many ways. They would save a spot in their house for Elijah in case he returns. And so when they talk and speak of Elijah, it's looking ahead to when he comes back. And so then in Moses and Elijah, what you've also got here is not just the law and the prophets represented. You've got a looking all the way back to the beginning, and you've got a looking forward all the way to Jesus' return. You've got a man who served as a bit of a forerunner for Jesus, as someone who came to bring the people of Israel out of bondage and into a promised land. And then you've got another man, Elijah, who's coming to be a bit of a forerunner as well as Jesus returns in glory and power to rule and reign. And these two men are sitting there with Jesus, and what are they discussing? We're given the details into that conversation, his decease, his departure. The word actually used there, it's his exodus, which is so interesting that Moses is speaking to Jesus about his future exodus as he would be departing and leaving this earth in Jerusalem on the cross for the sins of the world. See, in this moment, Jesus is glorified as king, but what they're discussing is that He's going to be the crucified king. What they're talking about is this moment, the whole purpose of why he came to earth to seek and save the lost, to come and pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. And this is the moment they're discussing upon the mountain. And when all this is going on, do we have these three disciples taking notes and worshiping God and amazed at this moment? No, we're told that they were heavy with sleep. While Jesus' appearance was altered as he prayed and he was glorified and his clothes are glistening, the disciples' faces were altered in a bit of a different way where they're Eyes are closing and they're drooling out the corner of their mouth as they are heavy with sleep. It's another pattern we see throughout Scripture that I'm sure many of us wish wasn't true. But disciples and followers of Jesus constantly falling asleep on the job. You've got it here at one of the most glorious moments in all of Jesus' ministry where he's glorified. And two men who have been dead for hundreds of years, men that we all look to and they're so proud to speak of and they quote them, are with him. And you're sleeping. You know, later, I spoke of another moment. These three are invited in in the garden. 
And Jesus asks them to pray for him. And he goes on and prays. And when he comes back, he finds them worshiping, right? He finds them praying and this incredible, no, he finds them sleeping. And he wakes them up and he says, come on, pray for me. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he goes on and he comes back and they're sleeping again and they're sleeping again. And right here, we're going to see Peter do something foolish. Guess what? In the garden, we see Peter wake up and do something foolish. He hacks off a guy's ear. You know, there's one other time, and it's hard to read this in Acts without chuckling. I mean, I know it wasn't a laughing matter in the moment, but we read about a man in Acts, Eutychus. And if you don't remember his name, you need to, because Eutychus was the man that was sitting in the window. And when the Bible study began to drag on and on through the night, we read that Eutychus fell asleep, fell out the window, and died. So then they had to go outside. They pray for him, and he's brought back to life. And they go right back up into the room and continue the Bible study. Like, turn back in your Bibles, verse 19. Sorry for the disruption. And they just continue on. But time and time again in Scripture, what do we see? God's doing incredible things, and his people are sleeping. And I know we want to sit here and point the finger and say, shame on you guys. I would have never fallen asleep. I would have been the one person there worshiping and praying while you guys would have been snoozing in the corner. No, how often are we guilty of sleeping on the supernatural and also guilty of getting excited about the superficial? We, like these disciples, can get our priorities all out of whack at times. You know a moment we don't find them falling asleep when they're arguing about who's the greatest? No, everybody's awake for that conversation. But in a moment like this, They're falling asleep on an incredible supernatural moment, but they're excited about something so superficial. And you and I, we do the same. How often are we guilty of being distracted or bored, falling asleep when God is doing something profound and incredible right in front of us? It's right before their eyes and they're missing it. Now, church, I don't want to be legalistic, but let's be realistic this morning. When we're more excited about a football crossing a goal line than we are about a soul that was headed towards eternal damnation and has now been saved and redeemed and brought into the family of God, we're sleeping spiritually. We're missing the most important thing, and we're excited about something that is so superficial. When we spend more money and time and energy on our outward appearance than we do on the inward man, we're falling asleep spiritually. When we are regularly concerned about how we're viewed online, but hardly concerned with how we're viewed in the eyes of God, We have seriously fallen asleep on what matters most. We're missing the main thing. 
These are disciples. These are chosen followers of Jesus that are going to be called to bring in the church age and to make disciples and go and spread the gospel. And yet in an incredible moment where God is being revealed before them, Jesus is being glorified, transfigured, they're asleep. It's no wonder that Peter reacts in this moment poorly because he was sleeping when he should have been praying and watchful. But don't be surprised in your life when you're reacting poorly in moments because when you should have been prayerful, when you should have been awake and watchful and keeping your eyes on Jesus, you were distracted and focused on other things. And so you missed this incredible, glorious moment and then acted in a way that was most certainly not close to his heart and his will. But as they wake, they're stirred from their sleep and there's this bright light and they see Jesus and Moses and Elijah standing before them having a conversation. We're told that it was this moment as now Moses and Elijah are leaving. And how are they leaving? What does that look like? We don't know. Are they ascending into heaven? Are they just disappearing or walking away? We don't know. But as they're doing this, Peter has a plan. Oh, yeah, Peter always has a plan. He says, hey, Master, it's good for us to be here. And he isn't wrong. It's great that they get to be here for this moment. He's kind of skipping beyond the apologies for falling asleep. He says, hey, it's good that we're here. But he has the wrong understanding of why, and we're going to see that in what is solution is right now to this situation. And it's a common mistake I think many of us make that is worth noting this morning. Peter believes it's good they're there so they can do something. Oh, Jesus, it's good. You brought Peter, James, and John, your favorite three of the 12, because you want us to do something in this moment. Oh, this is good. See, see, yeah, I knew you shouldn't have grabbed Thomas or, or Matthew. No, 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 we're the right guys for the job because you want us to do something right now that none of them could do. Yeah, it's good that we're here. You brought us up here so we could, we could make a tabernacle for you and, and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You want us to set up camp for you guys up here because you've got work to do. I knew you were going to bring in your kingdom. I told you the other day, Jesus, you're not going to die. You're going to rule in power. This is good. That's why you brought me here. And Luke gives us this detail after he says this, not knowing what he said. See, Luke's got the benefit of writing this later, and he knows how this all plays out. And he's like, Peter didn't even know what he was saying this moment. He wakes up and he goes, oh, I know. No, Peter, you don't. Now, you have to ask the question, though, what exactly did he say? What's the harm in wanting to build a couple tents for these guys to have a place to stay? And there could be a number of reasons why he shouldn't have said this. We'll just look at a few. First, in Peter offering to build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus, in many ways what he's doing is he's placing Moses and Elijah on equal level ground with Jesus. 
He's placing the law, he's placing the prophets on equal ground with Jesus. Do you realize even today there are people who are trying to put Jesus in a category with just another one of the prophets? He's a good man. No, he had a lot of good things to say, just like the Bible has a lot of good things to say, but he wasn't God. And in this moment, Luke's telling us God, the Father, is going to bring a cloud and clearly tell him, hey, stop it. This is my son. These are great men of God that were used in incredible ways, but they are not the son of God. They are not the Messiah. And so first and foremost, he shouldn't have done anything that would try and bring these three on a level playing field. This is the the chosen Messiah. This is the Son of God in the flesh. This is, as the Father will say, His beloved Son. But secondly, an issue we have here is that when Peter is wanting to set up tabernacles for them to stay on this mountaintop, he's wanting them to remain on this mountain and rule and reign with Jesus. He wants to set up shop for them. He wants them to stay on this mountaintop. This is exactly what he was guilty for in the conversation with Jesus before. No, 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 I've got a better plan, Jesus, and it doesn't involve you going to die. It involves you ruling and reigning in power now. And so once again, Peter's fought of God with his own ideas. He's trying to usher in the kingdom without going through the cross But Jesus wouldn't wear the crown until he bore the cross. One third and final reason that this is a problem is because, quite simply, Peter is trying to take control of the moment and put a plan together with what to do next when he was only brought up there to witness the total control and plan of God. This moment was not about Peter. It wasn't about James and it wasn't about John. God doesn't need them to do anything. They were brought there to be in the presence of God, to see the glory of God on display and to listen to his words, to go back all the way to Psalm 46, to be still and know that he is God. This was a moment for Jesus to be magnified and glorified, not the three. This was a moment for them to be reminded that it is Jesus who will accomplish this great work and not us. That it is all the law and the prophets that pointed to Jesus. And they're just there to be in his presence and behold his glory, not to do something for him. And we see this because as Peter's putting together his master plan and telling them all how it should go, this cloud covers them on the mountain. And they're afraid. And God the Father proclaims in this moment, this is my beloved son, hear him. So Peter, to put it bluntly, shut up. Peter, stop talking, be quiet, and stop trying to magnify Moses and Elijah. This is about my son, my beloved son. This is the second time we see God doing this. At Jesus' baptism, 
when John lowers him into the water and he comes up, we're told that the skies open up, that the Spirit descends like a dove, and God proclaims from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here again, he boldly proclaims, this is my Son, my beloved Son. Listen to him. Peter, he's got the plan. He knows what to do. He's the one to be magnified and glorified. He's the greatest. Listen to him. It's interesting throughout Scripture, not only do we see these mountaintop moments where God is displayed before his people, but also the presence of a cloud that he dwells in, that that covers his glory in a way so that people can survive in his presence. We see it on Mount Sinai with Exodus as he goes up there and there's this incredible cloud. It was a cloud that led the people through the wilderness and a pillar of fire by night. Daniel 7.13 speaks about Jesus in a cloud when it says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, a description given to God the Father, and they brought him near before him. And so we have this cloud that overtakes the mountain in this moment, clearly pointing to the presence of God on that place. And his command is that they would listen to his beloved son. It reminds me if we went all the way back to Exodus to see Moses in action in chapter 14 when we read this instruction Moses gave the people. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Hold your peace. Literally translate, be silent. Be quiet. Exactly what Peter needs to do in this moment. Be quiet. Stop trying to do something. God's going to fight for you. And he's not going to just give you a little help. He's going to so fight for you and remove this enemy that you'll never see them again. This enemy that they have been in bondage to for years and years and generations and generations is going to be wiped out and you'll never see him again. And not because of something great you will do, but because God will fight for you. So what do they need to do? Be still and see the salvation of the Lord for them. Do you see this repeated theme? It's Psalm 46, it's Exodus 14, it's Luke 9 to be still before God because he will fight for us and to know that he is God. He is in control. He's the Messiah. How often are we as a people so busy, so full of words, so full of ideas and plans and projects? We should heed this command today to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. How much stress, I wonder, how much anxiety, how much worry and pressure do we live with because we try to do things on our own that we don't have to? 
How much more accomplished would we be if we could trust in God's provision, his timing, his power, and his plan? I'm not saying this morning, you're saved, go sit in the recliner the rest of your days and do nothing. But what I am saying is exactly what we read in John 15, that you can have a lot of busy work and you can go fill up your entire calendar and schedule and do a lot of stuff, but apart from God, you can do nothing of substance. That if all you're doing for God doesn't come from a place of being with God and being filled with God, you've got nothing to offer. We're vessels. We're like a cup that comes before God and He pours out His Spirit on us. He equips us with gifts. He gives us His love and His heart. And He sends us out so that we can be poured out as an offering for others. But if you just try and go, 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 and do, do, do without God, guess what? You get moments like Peter speaking up when you shouldn't, rebuking God when you most certainly shouldn't, chopping off ears when you definitely shouldn't. Now, maybe no ears have been chopped off in your life. Maybe you've never been called Satan by God. I hope not. But I think each and every one of us have those moments where we realized, man, I got out ahead of God. I didn't spend time with him and carry his heart and understand his plan and move by his spirit's empowerment. I just went out and did what I wanted to do. And I had my own plan. And I had my own agenda. I had my own opinions. And I just went for it. And I made a whole mess of stuff. Like Abraham and Sarah going, God, I know you gave me this promise. You were going to give me a son. But we're getting old in age. And I don't see you doing anything. And so we're going to put together our own plan. We're going to take the maidservant, Hagar. We're going, to, we're going to bring forth Ishmael and not Isaac. We're going to do it in our own strength. A lot of damage has been done doing it in our own strength. What if we learned from these three here that God's invitation to you is to come into his presence, to be still, to know that he's God, to realize that he could do in a moment what you couldn't do in a lifetime. So don't be so foolish to think that he needs you. But man, it should floor us to understand that he wants us and that he invites us to be a part of what he's doing. And if we abide in the vine, in Jesus, we can bear much fruit. These disciples don't always get it. But there's going to be a moment that they do. When Jesus is gone and he's told them, you wait. You be still and know that I am God and you wait until the Spirit comes upon you and you will receive power. And they wait in that upper room. And the Spirit comes upon them and then they go out in power. Peter the one who denied Jesus, the one who continually is chopping off ears and saying things he shouldn't, when he receives power, he goes out of that room and he boldly proclaims the gospel in a way that thousands of people are cut to the heart and saying, what do we need to do to be saved? That's not the work of Peter. We've seen the work of Peter. That's the work of a man who has abided 
in Jesus, who waited on God, and then when he was empowered by God, went out in that power and authority and was able to do incredible things. How much more joyful would our work be if we didn't feel the pressure and the weight of it all hanging on us and we understood, man, the work for my salvation is complete. And the work I get to do now to be a part of God's plan, man, it's, it's, it's not dependent on me. He fights for us. He's the one that's going to accomplish his will. He's the author and finisher of my faith. So all I need to do is spend time with him and allow him to unite my heart to fear his name and renew my mind and give me his eyes to see people as he does and then I can go out confident that he goes with me. He'll fight for me. That in Christ I'm, I'm more than a conqueror. And if God is for me, man, who can be against me? It's the confidence we can have when we go out to do for God after having spent time dwelling with Him. Because here's the reality. It doesn't end on the mountaintop for these guys. And we all love these moments in our lives, the mountaintop experiences where we get to see God like never before and He moves in a powerful way. But make no mistake, church, your life is lived in the valley. And this is one moment they get with Jesus, but then they're going to travel back down and immediately there's work to do. We'll see it next week. A demon-possessed child. But that's coming from a place of dwelling with God, of sitting before Him and being still, of beholding His glory that then we go out and understand there's work to be done, Lord, and I want to be obedient, and I want to walk by faith, but I'm doing so confident of this that, that I need you, and that apart from you, man, the work is too great. The enemy's too strong. The days are too long. It's all too hard. Now, oh, God, but if you are for me, if you are with me, And if you really mean what you said, that you'll never leave me or forsake me, man, then as I go out, I'm going out confident that you'll fight for me, that you'll empower me, you'll give me the strength I need in that moment and the grace for the moments I try and take control. And we're told in our text that when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Now, we know from other instructions by Jesus, like with Jairus' daughter, that this is the moment he's telling them, this isn't for everybody else to know about right now. Later, there would come a time they could share, but it wasn't now. But what I love is that even in this incredible moment, you've got the law represented, the prophets, God in his presence on top of the mountaintop. And yet the same way they came up there is the way they're going to go down from there. It is Jesus alone. We're not saved because of the law. We're not saved because of the prophets. We are saved because of Jesus alone. The way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so they leave going down from that mountaintop with Jesus alone. The one who's going to make a way where there was no way. The one who's going to 
die the death that every one of them and that we deserved, the one who has redeemed us by his blood and has welcomed us into his family. And the confidence we can have today is the same confidence they had to move forward, that Jesus isn't going anywhere. And as I invite the worship team to come back up, as we wrap this up this morning and begin to turn our eyes once again towards the Lord, I want to give an opportunity for anybody who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe you've heard about him. Maybe you've read about him. Maybe you have friends who know him. Maybe you're in a family of people who follow him, but you personally do not know Jesus. You never understood before maybe that he was God who came down in the flesh to redeem us and bring salvation. And maybe this morning for the first time, you're seeing Jesus in new light. No, it may not be him being transfigured before you, but all of a sudden you're understanding, and that's by the Holy Spirit beginning to open your eyes, that he was more than a prophet, that he wasn't just a man, that this was really God. And he came down here because I really need him, because I am a sinner. We've all sinned and fallen short. The Bible tells us what the penalty is for your sin. It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the invitation we're given in Scripture is that if you this morning would be willing to confess that you are a sinner, I don't think I have to sell you on that. I think we're pretty convinced of that. But also that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's the Son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he was the perfect spotless one that came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross so that his blood could be the penalty for your sins. And all that he asks for in return is that you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that you are a sinner, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins and was raised again three days later. And if you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you could be saved. It doesn't take any magical words. It takes you honestly before him in this moment, confessing that to be true, believing that in your heart. And if you do, we're told what happens. He gives you a new heart, a new spirit within you. Old things pass away, all things are new, and you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And he gives you gifts. He writes your name in the the Lamb's book of life. He prepares a place for you in heaven. And he sets you on a new path in life. And in a moment, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, no matter where you've gone, your slate can be wiped clean. And you can be a child of God, spotless and perfect, not because you're never going to sin again, but because Jesus finished the work for your salvation on the cross. And I'll tell you what, there is no more freedom and peace and joy and hope that can be found than in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So is there anybody this morning that needs to make that decision? I would ask you to stand up or to raise your hand because we want to pray for you.
and we want to welcome you into the family. Is there anybody this morning that needs to make that decision? And I trust this morning that we are sitting among brothers and sisters in Christ. People that have made that decision and are a part of the family of God, then here's what I would invite you to do as we close. Let's be people that are still before him and know that he is God. Let's be people that listen to his words and his plan that don't sleep on the spiritual things God is doing right before our eyes, but rightly prioritize His will and not our own, His kingdom and not our own. And may our work for God always be from an outflowing of our time spent with Him. And there's an opportunity for you if the Lord's putting it on your heart to even respond to that this morning. You see, we're going to close with a few songs of worship, but there are people that are going to be available in the front of the room, upstairs, in the back of the room, by the door. And we'd love to pray with you. And maybe the Lord specifically putting something on your heart, an area where you've been getting distracted and wrongly prioritizing where your time and energy and focus go. Or maybe for some of you, it's, it's just that reminder you needed that you need to be still and know that he is God and you've been far too busy and you've been distracted and forgetting that. There are people that would love to pray with you and maybe the first act of obedience God is calling you to this morning is just to come and pray with someone and to say, Lord, I acknowledge you're speaking to my heart right now and you're showing me this area and I want to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer only. And if I hope to be a doer each and every day out there, it needs to start right here in this moment with my family where I can say, yeah, God, I hear you and I want to respond to you. Don't hesitate to come and receive prayer from people who love you, who are in that process with you and are struggling just as much as you that would love to come alongside you, okay? Let's pray as we move into this time of worship. Thank you, Jesus, for your invitation. And it's not based on how good we are or how much we've done, but on the finished work of you on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you desire to meet with us and, and show yourself strong on our behalf. And even when we fail and make mistakes, that your grace abounds so much more. And that even this morning, we can be confident that your mercies are new every morning and great is your faithfulness. And God, I just want to pray for each and every person in this room. Lord, where they are busy, would you help them to be still? God, where they are doubting, would you help them to know that you are God? Lord, where they are operating in their own plans and their own ideas and their own desires, would you show them a better way? Jesus, we want to be people that abide with you. That each and every morning as we come into your presence, we would see you in a new way. That 
we would know you better and that as we leave that time with you, we would carry your heart. We'd have a, an understanding of your voice. We would go where you call us to go. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. There are going to be people available for prayer. And I want to encourage you this morning that if you don't feel like you know the voice of God and you can't discern it in times of making decisions, the time to grow in understanding the voice of God, the way to do that is by spending more time with him. You know, my wife could call from any phone line in the world, and I don't have to recognize the number because I know her voice. And when she calls me and says, hey, I don't go, uh, hello, who is this? She says, it's Amari. I'm not going to go, okay, Amari who? Um, I know her voice, and when she calls, I know it's her. And that didn't just come from the first time I met her. That came from years and even a, more than a decade of spending time with her. And this morning, if you're wrestling and feeling like, I just don't know the voice of God well. I wrestle with knowing if it's just me, if it's just the, the pizza I had for dinner in my dreams, or if it's just the opinions of people around me and all the noise. Man, you're going to grow in understanding the voice of God as you spend time with Him and in His Word. But this morning, if He's, he's speaking to you, and he's calling you to respond in any way, please don't hesitate to be obedient to that this morning. Would you stand as we worship the Lord?